Even though dealers have been selling cars left and right the past few years, they are facing a number of issues that may challenge their businesses in the coming decade. Get ready for an in-depth look at the changing face of automotive retail. Coming up next on AutoLine This Week. And now, here's your host, John McElroy. I want to thank you all for joining us on AutoLine This Week. Today we're going to be talking about automotive retailing, dealerships, in fact, the future of where that's all going. And that's because my special guest for today is Dale Pollack. He's the author of this book, Like I See It. It's all about the obstacles and opportunities shaping the future of retail automotive. And Dale, I want to thank you for having joined us on today's show. Thanks, John. Very nice to be here. Also joining us for this discussion are Steve Finley from Wards Auto and Gary Vasilash from Automotive Design and Production. And it's great to have the both of you here to help yeah, me along. Thank you, John. Dale, let's start out. I, I'd like to throw this on the table to begin with. Tesla, which is saying, hey, we don't need any franchise automotive outlets. We're going to go with our own stores. Is this a threat to the franchise network? You know, it certainly is some form of a threat to the franchise network. However, I think that it also challenges the franchise network in, in a certain respect in a positive way. And I think the uh, last chapters of the story are yet to be written. And uh, I think there might be a few surprises to be told before it's all over. Do you think that the franchise uh, dealership network is a more efficient way of distributing cars to consumers than having direct stores from the factory? Uh, in some respects, I think it's it's more efficient. In other respects, I think the uh, Tesla model uh, informs our industry of some inefficiencies that presently exist in the uh, retail network. So I think it has some aspects of each. What are the inefficiencies? Well, I think one of the inefficiencies that's most prevalent in today's conventional retail network is the size and the scale of the physical footprint. It's no secret that more and more consumers are expressing a preference to shop and now beginning to transact online. And one uh, has good reason to question the need for the square footage and the expensive real estate that uh, dealerships typically occupy. Dale, you're, you're talking about things that remain to be seen. One of the things I found in your book that was rather fascinating is the make more to sell, sell more to make more formula that has worked for 100 years. You suggest that might be running out of gas. Could you talk about that a little bit? Well, you know, it, it's no secret that uh, dealers now are under tremendous pressure, margin pressure in particular. Uh, they're also under a lot of pressure from their factory partners. And I think that the reality for dealers today is that it's less about, uh, less about the average gross profit that they make on a transaction, more about the total gross profit, and much more about the overall efficiency of the business operation. And a lot of it is also the revenue stream that they are now getting from the automakers. That has significantly changed, hasn't it? Where it used to be the main revenue stream was you sell a, a retail, you buy at wholesale. Now that margin is so small, but the big revenue stream is from bonuses that the automakers give to the dealers. But there's some stipulations with that, aren't there? Correct. It's, it's what we commonly refer to today as line money. And it, uh, it's quite substantial. A recent NCM study informs us that the typical dealership in America, if they were to lose the uh, ads and deducts and what we call the below the line money, 
the average dealership today would be 6.4% negative profit. Wow. Well, well, you called it heroin, didn't you, at one point? It is like heroin. Uh, in, in some respects, the dealers love it because without it, they'd be negative. But on the other hand, they become extremely dependent on it. And it fundamentally changes the nature of the relationship between the dealer and their OEM partner. Uh, sometimes I refer to the relationship as more like being a circus animal. They have to <laughs> jump through all the hoops, sometimes hoops of fire, in order to get their reward. And without those rewards, they're uh, quite possibly out of business. So it, uh, it transforms the relationship between the dealer and the OEM from one that uh, might have been in, pr in previous years more of an independent dealer or an independent uh, business person relationship. And uh, it's really now where the dealer is ever more an agent of the factory uh, representative and uh, they have to perform as such. Well, and the automaker might say that's not so bad. Well, perhaps, but, uh, but I, I think what has gotten our industry as far as it has is the strength of the, uh, and, and the ingenuity and the creativity of, of the dealer. And to the extent that that's being worked out of the system, it's questionable whether that's good for the OEMs in the long term. So what about the relationship between the dealership and the consumer? Fundamentally changing. You know, the traditional dealership sales process culture was premised on control, controlling the deal, controlling the customer, not revealing information to the customer unless and until they evidenced all the intentions to purchase. And today, that, uh, that culture of control in the sales process is quite contrary to the uh, preferences of the you know, growing, coming-of-age Gen Y buyer that is used to buying things online, used to buying them in a very uh, transparent and consumer-centric manner. So uh, dealers are having really to relinquish some of the old habits and practices that proved very successful for many years, and this is proving to be a challenge for many dealers. Cultural shift, is that what? Absolutely, yes. And it re also requires not only a cultural shift, but it requires uh, quite a bit of investment in technology. Because unfortunately, you just don't go from A to Z overnight, where you shift from doing uh, in-person physical sales to online virtual sales overnight. So dealers are in this middle ground where today they have to support uh, both, which requires, uh, you know, new technology investments. It requires people who have skills to interact with uh, people in the physical environment, often different people than have the skills of interacting with people in the virtual environment. So it's really a very challenged uh, moment for dealers. Dale, you mentioned some of the inefficiencies with the traditional franchise uh, network. What are some of the efficiencies? What are some of the advantages that franchisees offer over direct stores like Tesla has? Well, one of the things that franchisees uh, do a pretty good job in terms of offering efficiency for the manufacturer's ability to move a lot of metal very quickly. Um, you know, dealers know how to send people home in cars. And, you know, for whether that's good or bad, however, what side of the you know, spectrum you look at that, they have the ability to move a lot of metal for a manufacturer. And uh, that's certainly an efficiency for an OEM. Mm -hmm. You had talked about uh, there's uh, in the book a, a lack of transparency. Um, and some people would argue, especially dealers who see all these prices posted that are readily available to consumers who go into the dealership armed with what they've discovered online. Some people would argue there's too much transparency. Well, once again, I, I think that that depends on which side of the spectrum you're viewing it from. From a consumer standpoint, I think there's never enough. And uh, 
from a dealer's standpoint, there's, there's often too much. But I think the transparency in the retail car buying process uh, is more uh, uh, real in some areas of the business than others. For example, I think it's uh, very easy for the common uh, person today to very readily identify what is a fair price for a used car. Uh, but conversely, I think it's very challenging for a consumer today to determine what is the right price for a new car, uh, primarily because there are uh, secret incentives. You know, there are incentives that are uh, not made public. There are dealer incentives, and then there are stair-step incentives. And, you know, one very stark example is that a consumer, if they just happen to hit the right dealership on the right day of the month, maybe the last day of the quarter, it literally is true that dealers have been known to sell new cars twenty, thirty thousand $30,000 below their cost because they're trying to make a bonus plateau that might yield them hundreds of thousands of dollars. So, you know, with that type of variability and uncertainty, I think you could make a, a strong case argument that transparency in the new car market is, is not very uh, much there. Um, and then, you know, in the terms of financing and after sale and aftermarket products, I think it's highly questionable how much transparency is there. Well, and then the risk is if somebody who bought the car at the beginning of the month compares notes with the person who bought the same car at the end of the month and say, whoa, Correct. I got overcharged, you're going to have one unhappy customer on your hands. Correct. And that obviously negatively affects the dealership who sold them the car and negatively affects the, the brand that manufactured, the OEM that manufactured the vehicle. So I, I, I personally believe that those stair-step incentives that cause those sort of disparities in the long term are really not good for anybody. So you think there should be complete transparency in terms of costs? So if we go online to Amazon and it'll tell us what whatever it is we want to buy costs, there's the number, it's fixed. For anything. For anything, and it's the same for you as it is for me as it is for you. I, I do believe that, but you know, that doesn't mean that it advantages um, certain people in the, in the current condition, but I think it's fairly well understood that, um, that efficient markets uh, ultimately serve the interests of everyone more than inefficient markets do. So That's been tried and it hasn't really worked or it hasn't lasted in the sense that Saturn pretty much pioneered that. You had one price. Now, you could argue over the trade-in value and the financing rate and the like, but they were as transparent as they got, and it never caught on in the rest of the industry. Well, John, but I, I think you could argue that perhaps the uh, lack of success that Saturn experienced was probably more due to the uh, product than oh, it was, I, I agree, than it was but I'm the sales process. That, that idea never spread in well, the industry. It, 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 I, I would respectfully uh, disagree. I think that the concept of one price, no negotiation, uh, that first appeared probably you know, with Saturn in the 1980s was an idea before its time. You know, and being too early with something is exactly like being wrong. Uh, so I think that uh, there are many uh, uh, failed attempts for pure transparency in the 1980s and 1990s, but you know, those are really different times. Those were different consumers. We live in an age today where when we buy most every other consumer product, we do it with virtually full transparency. And now we have a generation of car buyers that are accustomed to that and expect that. So I think that the need and the opportunity to provide transparency in the retail automotive industry today is ever apparent. There are some very successful one-price car dealers out there. And w is it accurate to say that one-pricing is almost a de facto reality of the market? Well, yes and no. Um, I say to dealers that whether you realize it or not, 
every single one of you are on your way to a one price and and the reason i say that is i have the technological means to objectively identify the fact that there over time is less and less spread between asking prices of vehicles and actual transaction prices so so dealers clearly are on their way towards a one price selling environment however I think uh, a clear distinction needs to be made between that dynamic and being a quote-unquote one-price dealer. I think the common uh, misperception, misunderstanding, and consequently common reason for failure of many dealerships who attempt to be one-price is that it goes far beyond not negotiating. It has to become an entire culture of the dealership. It has to be the DNA of everything that goes on in that dealership. And it, it, you know, it, and it goes to the heart of being transparent, and it goes to the heart of relinquishing control in favor of the shopper. Um, and, and the first time you deviate, the first time you make an exception to your one price uh, policy or your culture, you're done. Because again, like anything else, it, it starts with the people in your organization believing that it's the right thing to do. And when you send them mixed signals by making occasional exceptions, it deteriorates very quickly. So I think a lot of failures that we see in terms of the one price selling model are not uh, attributable to the efficacy of the concept, but more towards the lack of execute, proper execution of it. Is this being driven largely by people coming into dealers with a sheaf of papers with printouts which basically say this is how much this car costs and this is what I want to buy it for and not a proactive nature of the dealer saying hey if we want to stay in this business and do very well we need to change up what we're doing well I I, I think it's a combination of both I mean I, I think you have some dealerships who just your dealers that just get it and know that it's the right way to uh, to transition their their business to the future or to the present, um, but I also think that for others, it you know it's motivated by a practical understanding that these people know they they know pretty darn well what they should pay for a car before they contact or engage the dealership. So you know all the process of pretending or being in denial that they know, you know, and trying to take them down a road as if they didn't know generally speaking, evidence itself in a, an expensive, you know, lack of success environment. Dale, as you, you look out towards the future, and I'm thinking maybe a couple of decades out, there, it's such an exciting time in the industry. There's all this ride sharing that's happening and car sharing, and soon we're going to have autonomous cars, uh, and I presume we're going to have autonomous ride sharing cars. Can dealers play a role in this? Is there an opportunity for them? Well, that's the big question, John, and, and I think we certainly hope they, they will, and, and I would not be one to quickly bet against the dealer because, as we all know, the accounts of the imminent death of the dealer has been greatly exaggerated through the years. It's not happened. I mean, this is an innovative, dynamic, resilient bunch of people. But having said that, having said that, I think that there is uh, real cause for dealers and all of us in the industry to really stop and pause and think about what is the role of the dealer in the future uh, uh, mobility environment. And I think that that future mobility environment is going to come about as a result of a confluence of two things. Number one, the autonomous car, and number two, the attractiveness of ride sharing. Uh, when those two uh, phenomenon, which are already beginning to crop out the horizon, uh, really come together in a mainstream way, um, I think that's when the viability of the retail dealer, as we know them today, becomes challenged. Because I believe that the majority 
of these autonomous cars that will be moving ever more people around from point A to point B are going to be uh, commercially owned as opposed to privately owned. And we know that dealers today on average make a 2.5% net to sales return, which is not a lot. We know that dealers uh, make very little money, if any, when they sell vehicles to commercial fleets. So the question has to be asked, what is the tipping point? How much does an average dealership sales need to be transitioned from private to commercial fleet to make that 2.5% go negative? Um, and I don't really think it takes too much. So I think that this is the reality of the future. I think it's not, uh, it's not highly debatable. I think what is debatable is the timing of it. I often say that I think it's easier to envision the end state of our uh, future rather than it is to predict its timing. Um, so dealers need to find a relevant role in that uh, commercially driven uh, uh, transportation as a service subscription model. And I think there likely are some roles, but they're yet to be clearly identified. Would this mainly be perhaps maintenance rather than sales? Uh, it, it could be maintenance. However, I think that you know the maintenance side of it also has some challenges, primarily due to the fact that uh, it appears that most of these vehicles are going to be electrified. And those vehicles generally have fewer moving parts, require less maintenance, but there'll certainly be some. Uh, but I also think that um, there are some very interesting models that are emerging today and now are being piloted by certain dealers that might give them a role on, the, uh, on, on what was formerly maybe the sales side, which might be a subscription department, where dealers have a fleet of vehicles that are available to consumers um, on subscription models. Swapping out cars. Yes. Cadillac well, and Porsche. Uh, Porsche yes. just announced they're going to try that. Cadillac's been doing it in, uh, what, just New York City, or have they expanded it's, it's that It's still yet? just New York. Okay. Yeah, it, it's being tried regionally by, by many right now, and, and this is one that, for me, holds uh, some real hope for, for car dealers. But once again, you know, let's not be quick to bet against the car dealer. They've proven to be a pretty powerful, resilient bunch. Right, the whole industry has, yet there are pro prognosticators and studies that say ride-sharing won't affect sales. And you think, how could it not affect sales? And I, I liken it to like dessert sharing at a restaurant, not mm -hmm. to compare the car industry to pineapple upside-down cake, but- <laughs> I'll have one. You know, <laughs> yeah, we'll have, between the two of us, we'll have one, and the restaurant's very accommodating. They'll bring you, you know, two plates, and two you know, utensils, right. um, dessert is the highest profit margin uh, thing on the menu. Right. Um, but you could have sold two desserts versus one. How could, that, how could ride sharing not affect car sales yeah, in that I, regard? Yeah, I, I, like you, Steve, I don't buy that. I mean, I, I, I think the, the statistics that I'm about to quote are, are, are generally accepted. Uh, I think the average household in America roughly has like 1.9 vehicles in driveway. The average car is used two hours a day, which is 4% utilization. Cars are not getting less expensive, they're getting more expensive. So already today, they're a bad economic proposition. Now, what I understand to be the case is that in most places in America, if you drive less than 11,000 miles per year, it is actually cheaper to Uber today. Now, when you take the driver out of the seat of that Uber, that 11,000 miles goes to 25,000 miles, which covers the vast majority of people in America. So when you have transportation that is safer, more reliable, and much less expensive, 
you have to believe that that 1.9 vehicles per household is going to go to 1.8, going to go to 1.7, going to go 1.6. And again, those, those vehicles that are being purchased are going to be ever more purchased by uh, commercial entities rather than private people. So I think anybody who's predicting that uh, this won't affect uh, sales, um, I, I, I just don't understand that logic. And clearly these cars are going to have a much higher rate of utilization as they should. Uh, but then, you know, aside from the economic um, propriety of, of, of transportation as a service, you know, what's the value, what's the social value of having vehicles that um, uh, injure and harm and kill fewer people? Uh, what's the social value of you being able to use your time instead of concentrating on the road driving the car? Uh, working, sleeping, resting, interacting with family and friends, you know, what's the social value of that? So when you combine the social value of, of, of mobility, transportation as a service in an autonomous, along with the economics, it just, you know, it's, it, it, it challenges anybody to say why this isn't going to happen. Again, I think the real room for the debate is at what rate it's going to happen. Yeah, I would agree with that too. The, we, we can debate the rate all, uh, all day long. In the meantime, what's the main message that you're giving to dealers right now, to automotive retailers? Well, a, a couple key messages. One is the fact that while all this transformation of mobility of which we speak is, is very important for dealers to keep their eye on, you cannot discount or scoff at the fact that we have a very robust vibrant business today. I mean, we'll sell 17 plus million new vehicles this year, perhaps upwards of 40,000 used vehicles. That is one really big business. However, that one really big business that we have today, aside from all of the future transformational issues of mobility, is very challenged, very challenged. The margins in these uh, transactions today uh, in many cases are very small if, if they exist at all. The ever-increasing pressures from the factory to do what I might uh, argue to be unnatural acts are very strong. So, so it just in the current environment, as robust as the business is, it's, it's under a lot of challenge and dealers have to recognize that. And if they're gonna ever get to a point where they have to worry about the future mobility, they're gonna have to manage their businesses under the current reality, which I think effectively comes down to one word, and that is efficiency. Dealers are gonna have to become more efficient in several areas, human capital utilization, uh, process, operational processes, promotional inefficiency, technology inefficiencies. They're gonna to have to find efficiencies in all these different areas just to survive to one day meet that new world of, of, of uh, transformative What, what about efficiencies and fewer turnovers of employees? That's a Human capital. chronic issue. Terrible issue, that's right. I mean, the average dealership today has a 67% annual turnover of salespeople and 40% overall. And that's simply unsustainable. And, and not only do dealers have to uh, hire, be more effective at hiring and retaining people, but the type of people that they need to hire is very difficult. I mean, we have baby boomers for the most part uh, trying to hire Gen Y people. And the expectations of what the baby boomers who are doing the hiring think is important, it very often is diametrically opposed to what those you know, prospective Gen Y people are looking for. You know, they're looking for things that, that we just don't know to be commonplace in the retail business, predictable hours, predictable pay, you know, very uh, clear career advancement paths. You know, these are things that are not endemic to our retail industry today. So we have a lot of learning to do. We have a lot of growing and a lot of opportunity, quite frankly, for better results. But won't that all change up? Should there be more transparency? Should there be more fixed pricing? Therefore, the nature of the person 
we'll be able to go in there and, and, and have these metrics and see them laid out very carefully and yeah. straightforward. Yeah, I think it, it, that's going to drive the change. I, I agree. Dale, is it just a matter of hiring the right people or is it the process itself? Because as you know, nobody gets hired into any job thinking, boy, I'm just going to you know, loll away the days and, <laughs> and not do a good job here. People come in you know, fired up. And it's generally the, the system or the process that changes their I, attitude. John, I couldn't agree more. The, the process is, is so flawed, and there's so much opportunity there. You know, I'll just give you one example. Dealerships are very well attuned to the need to very quickly respond to a, a shopper who submits an online lead for a vehicle. I mean, dealers, you know, are pretty good at responding within an hour or so. The average time for a dealership to respond to a career in inquiry on their career site, if they have a career site, is upwards of three days or more. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and in reality, you know, that, that probable Gen Y applicant is doing it from their mobile phone, and they are probably getting responses from high-tech companies, you know, employer, prospective employers, within minutes, and when they get it, you know, within days or weeks from a dealership, it's often too What's late. What's the dealer doing Just for one three example. days? Yeah, exactly. What, what, well, what is the dealership do, doing in three days? Why, why wouldn't they? Uh, they jump they, on there? they don't have defined processes. There's not accountability. Now there are technological solutions now that are becoming that are first time now in my career coming into the industry tailored for automotive that actually create a workflow, you know, associated with with job. Uh, recruiting and, and processing applications and, and templates for interviewing and, and guides for hiring the right people. I have never seen those solutions in our industry before the last couple of years. And I think that uh, they also create not only a, a, a workflow, but perhaps as importantly as they create accountability, such that a general manager or a dealer can look into a dashboard and see in every department how many open uh, jobs there are, what stage, if any, you know, these, these uh, jobs are being filled, what stage of the process it's in, and hold managers accountable for moving people effectively and timely through that hiring process. So, I mean, these are just examples of opportunities that still are out there for dealers to become more efficient and respond appropriately to margin compression. I'm afraid with that, we're going to have to wrap this conversation up. Uh, as I said, the book is Like I See It by Dale Pollack. Dale, you've written a number of books, haven't you? This is my fourth one. Fourth one, okay. And people can probably find it, what, online, any place, right? <laughs> uh, you know, I, I have to ask when people today ask, where can I find your book? And I have to say, duh, <laughs> Amazon. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Maybe like you find everything else in the world That's now. right. At a dealership near you. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's right. Dale Pollack, thanks so much. Thank you. Steve Finley, Gary Vasilash, I want to thank you guys. Thank and you of course, much. I have to thank all of you for having tuned in.